in the pandemic, books were not socially distant from us. It was one of the comforts for a lot of people. There were books to read and books to follow and books to look forward to. But one of the strange things about reading, although it's done silently and it's done alone most of the time, that you want to share books, that if you like a book, you want someone else to read it, that you love the idea of a book that is, in a way, being, being part of the community or part of a community of readers. With that in mind, the art of reading is a way of bringing readers together, is a way of choosing books that I think people might like because they have given me a lot of pleasure and having a discussion about these books and bringing people together so that we all know that it's not just that reading is a form of pleasure, which it also is, but it's an art. It's actually a way for us to engage intellectually and imaginatively with words, with sentences, with what writers have done. And um, so for that reason, um, I want to share these books that have mattered so much to me. Kevin, can I just start for, you know, as a writer, just asking you about the first paragraph of your book? And I hope you'll forgive me if I read it out loud. It's short. He speaks in your voice. This is, this is Angel. He speaks in your voice, Dublin. And there's something hopeful in the new edges of his words and phrases that has come through revolutions, generations, and across continents to be witnessed here on these streets now. I think that's a beautiful opening paragraph. And I wonder at first if you could tell us, did that come as, as the beginning? Did you labour over it? It seems effortless. It seems absolutely beautiful way of starting the book. Yeah, thanks, Colm. Uh, great to be speaking with you to start with, all the way from New York. It's so cool. Um, yeah, that came first. That was literally the first line in the piece. Um, uh, I would have written it maybe six, seven years ago in uh in school um during a leaving cert exam i was i was a uh, supervising a, a kind of a, i was a reader in one room for one student and the student left and uh, i remember just writing that line i'd obviously been reading a bit of don delillo at the time uh, i literally take the first line from he speaks from in your voice american so from don delillo's underworld it was the same kind of thing and it's just the same kind of epic response but uh yeah, that, that that was there from the start, but you know yourself, it was worked on so much. Even a year ago, I was submitting to see if a piece of the book would be um, put into a literary magazine, you know, a, a little excerpt. And I remember emailing the editor and asking him about um, the first line, whether we put in uh, have or has, and where do we put the stress? Is it on hope or is it on the language? And we settled on hope was where we stressed. So I'm glad we we settled on on, on that. And the second thing I want to ask you is about, about Brigham itself, about the idea of its history. And there's several mentions to, uh, of a monument, of a, of a massacre, of something that had happened in history, that it, it doesn't deeply affect the characters, but it's just there in the background. It's like a code. It's like a, it's, it's like a, a sound you pay special attention to. The, the, the idea that this is not, this, while this book is very much a book of the present, it's alert to the, what happened more than 100 years ago. Yeah, histories, especially in Balbriggan, history is always present. You can't get away from it. It's like the sack of Balbriggan is what the town is famous for. And then even the name Balbriggan, Balbriggan's the trousers. So as a as a town and as a, a word in itself, Balbriggan, it's 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 steeped in history. But I think the the point I was trying to make was that's old history. And I think the line from Princess in the middle of the book is that what they're living through is is 
is to become history. They are the new uh, topic of history that we'll be looking back in 50 years' time and saying, you know, they were creating history. And especially coming out of the back of COVID times, it felt as if we were living in a, a definite historical epoch or a new kind of time. I think Princess was the one who, with it through our history project, was able to grasp that. So, uh, yeah, history is here. It's in Balbriggan. It's literally on the streets. And you can't miss it when you walk down Main Street. They have the, the big mural to, to a stabbing, you know, to uh, black and tans and to colonialism and imperialism. It's there. It's present. It's always on the streets. And I thought that was a, an interesting way to juxtapose that with the idea of violence in the year 2020. The 21st century, I suppose. Talking about history, and I'm thinking that in 100 years' time, if a historian wanted to look at a place where you could see the change in Ireland, you, you, you could see a new Ireland coming into being, that Balbriggan would, would be, instead of being the sacking of Balbriggan 100 years ago, in 100 years' time, the Balbriggan of now would seem like, like a cauldron, I, I suppose, in which a new Ireland came into being, which was effectively multicultural. Yes, um, I think the the way I looked on it, and I've said it in many talks and interviews and the rest is, ultimately, Balbriggan is Ireland's future now. Um, and, and a number of things have kind of come together to make that happen. And there's another a lot of pressures on the town as a result of that, because people aren't, you know yourself, from all, all sides of the political persuasion. And I was conscious of this when I was writing the book, and I wanted to make sure that I got the details right and try and show the town as it was and how the people living in the town as they were without judgment and uh, being impartial to to what's going on but as I was saying as well I had a I was privileged position I'm in in the town in the school that I'm in and the classrooms that I'm in that they have as I said 50% second generation immigrants would be in front of me in the classroom so this this way of living and this this way of interacting and this way of uh, solidarity the way the students get on the way we get on um, had to be written about and had to be discussed and had to be dug down into and see how what you uncover and and what stories you can tell from that. Um, and that's why, to me, the details in the town and rendering the town as it is right now, like you said, felt very important because you are documenting, I think, genuinely think the birth of something um, and the beginning of something. I think your novel Youth is important as a document that documents this, but it's also, of course, a novel and it's also filled with characters. And, and what you're doing is you're, in a way, creating people who, who rise above their mere historical moment or their race or, you know, what it is they're doing within a multicultural Ireland to become themselves and that, and that this is the great project. But, but in order to do that, you have to create a sort of low-grade racism. Um, that is just there all the time, throbbing in the background, that arises at a certain moment when, um, for example, Barry has all sorts of views, um, the government and refugees and how Balbriggan, there's a lovely line, Balbriggan needs to be given back to Balbriggan people. And he talks about Balbriggan shops for Balbriggan people. Obviously, that's one extreme. It really only happens once at this moment in the book. But there's a, there's a really wonderful moment where a woman goes into a chemist shop and she sees two people who are not white and she presumes they have to be mother and daughter. And it, she, she doesn't mean any harm, but it's a lovely little moment where you just see people's inability to make distinctions and how offensive something can be that isn't meant to be there. But these are very small things against a much larger picture, which is of not only people struggling, 
with people becoming themselves in, in a way that happens in all novels, where you watch someone confronting their destiny uh, with, with a certain set of characteristics up against hurdles and um, using choices, using chances. And, and that what you're doing is you're rescuing these characters from being merely statistics or being merely figures in a, histor- in a sort of document that shows how Ireland is changing. These characters rise above that. I think it's an important element in your work as an artist. Yeah, um, there's a number of things at play there. And I think you live and die by the characters, but also how well drawn they are. So it's easy to throw out a character like Tanya and Dean and Angel and Princess. But unless you have, you render them and you create them in such a way that they're believable, they, they, they lie flat in the page. So small things such as the incident in the chemist and and Barry and the rest, you I have to be aware of them and see them in in the character's view. Like so for Princess, for example, um, if I didn't have those details and I didn't have that sense of who she was and what she had to deal with and low level stuff like that, um, the character wouldn't be able to breed on the page and it wouldn't be a real character. If that makes it sounds ridiculous, but it, it, the character wouldn't be believable. Um, so that's what I was. All constantly kind of struggling with and making sure that it was right on the page and the, the character was able to, um, yeah, be believable, um, if, if that makes any sense to you at all. And I think I think the way you work with this is that, that you use your ear as much as your eyes, that, you know, when, when the first time I've, I've come across the feds, I realised, oh, that's what they must call the cops, the feds. And I love it. I love every time it comes up and I love realising what it is. I love allow. Could you could you just take us through allow? Uh, because I've started to say allow now, yeah. and um, if you could advise me as to how to use allow. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm just a, <laughs> it just I'm a cipher. It just comes through me. But no, uh, the language like that um, is yeah. That, that that took a while. It's you, you can't just like the, the story I tell people. I'll tell you as well is that I was um, I had a class about six years ago and it was a communications English and communications class. So we just took a dictionary of of language slang language, and we put up on the board and I'd gather it up over the over the weeks. But so there are words like that. But then you have to see them in action and you have to like you say get the rhythm of them and where they're used. I, I've seen people just take certain words and plant them into onto a line and they just sound ridiculous. So it's it's not enough having the word itself. You have to have the rhythm of the sentence and how the word is actually spoken. So the likes of allow is like, I presume it's just an exasperation. You know, it's like oh come on allow or yeah oh come on. I think it's just come on or or I'd hear Janie Mac. You know you've heard that from. Um, yes. Even the words like feds, like you have a choice to make, as, as I'm sure you know, especially for any vernacular kind of um, writing. And James Kelman would have been my kind of totem pole for that. Um, Who would be? James Kelman. Yeah. James Kelman, a, a huge yeah. fan of his. But you make a decision on the vernacular to, to just let it live on the page. And like you said, hopefully then people will just go with it. And if you once you go with it, it's part of the journey. I'm sure you've seen it from the opening third person to the first person to the really closed off third person at the end. My intention was always that you feel distance from these people and the language should distance you. But then over time, as you get closer to the language, you get closer to the person and you get closer to the characters. And so it was my intention, I'm glad to hear that you're doing it, that the language becomes normalized for you as you're, as you're reading a character like Angel and you're, you understand him what he's saying. And as you understand what he's saying, you start to understand him. Um, you're on that yeah. I mean, I didn't have any trouble understanding it, so it became normalised in that sense. But it wasn't normalised in the sense that I found it exciting and energetic. 
that it, that it, that it, that it gave me that that it created a sort of I suppose a a, a sort of um, fizz on the page that that you were hearing a new a, a new sound and I think you're right that that really did happen in Scotland didn't it that that generation of novelists from Alistair Gray to James Kellman to um, Irving Welsh and um, to Janet Galloway they set about finding a vernacular and then making that vernacular literary and putting it into the novel as though it were normal. This is what language is here. And, and, and it isn't received English. It is instead an English that has a funny energy. And, and that when you when you see it on the page, it, it sort of lives for you. It's, it's what W.B. Yeats, when he was talking about John Linton Singh, called a living speech. And um, I'm reminded of Singh because the idea that in Ireland... Um, 125 years ago, this figure, John Millington Singh, arrived on the Aran Islands. And what he found was, was a sort of energy that wasn't on what he calls the mainland. He calls it a primitive energy. But what he does with it is he writes his book, The Aran Islands, but then he gives it to the playboy, the Western world. He has these wonderful women coming in, you know, openly sexual in, in a country that didn't, didn't seem to allow that, filled with, 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 with um, I suppose, flavor, texture in their speech, and all of the time willing to have a fresh response to life if a man came in who murdered his father in the Playboy of the Western world, instead of condemning him or calling the police, they just would wonder, well, what was that like? And so I'm finding the same sort of excitement here where, where there's something new happening, and it isn't about race, it's about language. It's yeah. about a, a new way of picking up words, of, of, of allowing dialogue to happen. And that the dialogue itself then gives the novel a sort of excitement. And I just wonder if, um, I mean, it's, it's slightly close to Roddy Doyle in the sense of when, when, when we read those novels first, realizing he came out, he, he was a teacher. In other words, he, he came in as a sort of semi-authority figure into the room and was able to, was able to listen and get a real sense of um, what was behind the words. And I wonder if your job as a teacher helps you in that. Yeah, there's a few things to say there. It's funny you should say Singh, because I'd always have the, the idea of, remember Singh, he wrote in his diaries that he'd be above the pub on the Aran Islands and he'd be looking through a crack and he'd be listening to what they're saying and getting the stories from them there. I wasn't quite looking at through a crack. It's it's in front of me. And um, and like Roddy Doyle as well, you like you you have to be, you have to, like I'm a teacher first, I say this, I'm a teacher first, I'm a writer second, but you have to be smart for what you're doing. I don't have time to go off and research massive novels and, do do novels that would take a lot of research basically because I'm working nine to five. So when I go home, I decided to use what was in front of me, like you're saying, and listen to the language in front of me and study the language that I was hearing in front of me and stu also study the people in front of me and use that as a kind of um, a starting point for a novel. You know, um, I remember Rob Doyle, who's a writer who I admire, he says like the one thing he gets when he is not working full time is the chance to read and to think about things and when he's reading he's able to you know work work into his into his work so for me i don't get a chance to read as often as i'd like and i wouldn't get a chance to research so i use what was in front of me as research um i'm lucky enough then to be able to hear the students around me and it's unfortunately now it's getting to the point with this book yeah i still stop the kids now and it's like so what was that you said but now they're smart to it they say oh you're only asking me this question because you want to put it in the next book um, I, was, I was undercover for the first, you know, the last <laughs> six years. Um, but now they're they're getting smart. But I'm still listening. And I think for myself, I don't know whether it's to keep me interested in the teaching or 
whether I genuinely have an interest, I, I can't work it out, but I'm interested in language. And when you're hearing these words around you and you hear the sentences being spoken and you're hearing um, the mix of language being put together in front of your ears and eyes, I, I kind of, I, I was drawn to it and I had to put it on the page. And I'm glad yeah. you said the dialogue. I, I mean, there are really, they're really wonderful examples. Um, on page 176, for example, um, he's talking to Princess and um, he says, allow Princess, please. You know, I'm sorry. Don't be extra. Don't be extra. So great. Um, swear down. I said, sorry. Yeah. And I mean, you could an actor. I'm, I'm, I'm saying it deliberately badly, you know, but an actor could have such a good time with, with how each word is inflected. But what I'm saying is, as the reader, who's, the whole idea of don't be extra is completely new to me. But I found it totally exciting and interesting that don't be extra. And uh, so, so that that idea of a sort of new language coming into being, as a sort of new sort of town comes into being, as then a new sort of literature is needed to reflect that. Yeah, um, yeah. The, the lines like that, uh, where you, you hear them, like even "Don't be extra." Like you reading it there is hilarious. Like I know I could never read it, and that's one thing when you're writing this is like it would just sound ridiculous for me to ever read it in a reading. So I'd always read the opening when I do it, um, but. That's that's the kind of the price you have to pay when you're, you're you're taking other people's words and you're putting them on a page in in that kind of regard. Um, don't be extras one. Uh, don't be uh, this is long. Uh, don't give me a headache. You know, it just it's the list is just nonstop. That you have to kind of stop and ask yourself, does it sound right on the page? But I was lucky enough that they had um, a audio book done as well, and there was an actor Gabriel Adewusi who did Angel, and he was able to. He's a brilliant actor. Um, he like you said brought an energy to it as well. And he was able to translate it onto the, onto the audio book, which, which really helped me. And um, there's something in the novel that I, that I haven't really read before now, um, is there's, there's, a, there's a lot of bad sex in the book. But for, forget that. I mean, I mean, there has to be bad sex. These, these are young people. They're trying things out. They're all gathered together. If a parent is away, they all gather in the house. And, you know, there's a lot of drinking and there's a lot of back and forth between boys and girls. And um, what I was interested in were, I suppose, the idea of how tentative it still is for them, how nervous the boys are, especially. But the girls, too, but the boys more than the girls over what they should do next, how they should handle this. It isn't, it isn't as though watching pornography as they do, gathering together as they do, with all these new freedoms, the boys are still so, so afraid, so wondering, was this the right moment? What should they do now? And I thought that was incredibly well handled. And in a way, it's, it's outside you know, the ideas of whether this is a new town, Balbregan, or where it is. Just this idea of anyone who's ever been 15 reading this knows, I think this is a brilliant account of what that tentative business with boys and sex is like. And um, I mean, I'm not asking you, is this, is this autobiographical? I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm talking about this as a literary thing, as, as bringing in this idea that these, are, these may seem super confident in some ways, really not confident in others, but in the middle somewhere, the sex thing is very dramatic. Yeah, I think uh, th that came out more so in Dean. Um, but but all, the all the lad characters, I suppose, is, is the case. Um, yeah, it was just, it's something you see... Like, with teenagers especially I was once a teenager myself <laughs> and a young boy so uh, I'd have I'd have knowledge again there as well but for contemporary boys you can't get away from the you can't get away from porn and um, what's their expectations in porn and the bravado that, that all that brings and they're all they're swimming in it they're, they're swamped by it it's it's you, you can't get away from it even as a, a teacher of 14 years you've just seen it and the idea of it and the ubiquitous nature of it just it's everywhere 
And so yeah, you're not, I mean, I mean, this, for example, with Dean, um, I mean, he's he's getting close to to being with this girl in a serious sort of way, and he says, "I uh, this feels good." I can only groan in reply. I'm freaking out under the weight of everything. I'm scared from all the porn I've watched. I know a fair bit about horny women, and you go, "No, you don't." Like, stop now thinking. But you realize, of course, that he is he is treating what he's been seeing in porn as very serious indeed, as informative, as almost formative. Yeah. And he's trying to deal with his own body, his own feelings versus what he thinks is what's real, which is the porn and what he's feeling somehow isn't so real. That's like that, that is Internet brain unfiltered. It's that generation where they, they can't tell the difference between, as you say, what is real and what is not real. Like everything they put up on online, they know isn't real, but yet everything they see back to them, they can they consider is real. So you, how do you filter out then the porn and then what your friend is posting? That's just a happy birthday, I suppose, you know, um, party. Everything is is mixing and merging. And it's something that I suppose my generation and our generation haven't lived through. So we don't know how how would it affect people in their everyday lives? Um, like I've seen it from my side where teenagers put stuff out online and they're surprised when there's an actual physical or a real life uh, repercussions from it because to them, they've posted it, it's out there. It's, it's, not, it's not real. But then when you talk about the filter and you talk about porn coming this way, they, they buy it as real. So it's just such a mixed up, idea i think the internet and to grow up with the internet is not something i've done so i just tried to tap into that and the expectations of how to live with this internet and with this constant stream and especially for for young men and girls from such a young age to be dealing with the idea of porn and the access accessibility of it and then of course tanya has to deal with the the real life consequences of of actions that become considered porn as well so it's there. And if you were to write teenagers and forget about Bob Regan, but if you're to write teenagers now in the year 2022, 2023, you have to address phone usage, which I don't know whether it works or not on the page. I hope it does. But you also have to address the elephant in the room, which is online world and things that they see constantly from an online perspective, which is hard to transcribe onto the page. And that's where we come to Tanya and the idea of Tanya and how Tanya looks on the page was a kind of a new way to tap into that experience and how to express her internet brain through that page, if you know what, I'm, what I mean there. Yeah, I think the Tanya scene is, is, uh, the scene is really very dramatic. I, I found the phone usage um, where one of the boys, it must be Dean, um, feels that what's happening to him sexually, which, I mean, he, he is about to have sex, it seems to me, and he should be delighted with himself. Uh, you know, in any other novel, he'd be all ready for this. But what's fascinating about your book is the way, the, just you're in his mind and you have the porn on one side, but you have the other side, you have his phone. And he's not sure that this is going to be entirely real unless he records it. And it was something I'd never thought of. It's the most dramatic idea that somehow he is caught between two things. His own fe feeling that he has an idealized sex, which is porn his own feeling that it won't be real unless it's recorded. In the middle, of course, is a thing called him. And as the reader, you're completely um, caught between these three forces, the him, the, the porn, and the idea, uh, which I'd never thought about, exactly. that, he would have, that, that he reaches for his phone to see where it is. Yeah, that, uh, that, that, that comes from just conversations with kids about, not about things like that, but in general, like to be lads that be telling me that they that they saw someone get a, a slap or a punch and they got it on their camera. And I'd be like, 
how did you manage to get your phone out and record it? And their line is, well, the phone is always in my hand and the camera is always on. So it's not like me, you know, person, I'm like, oh, yeah. there's something happening. I better record this on my phone. It's it's an extension of their hand. It's part of their experience of walking yeah. down the street. The phone and, is and in th- their hand. This is captured very beautifully in a moment where she's having an argument with her mother and someone in the supermarket's already got the phone to, to film the, that tiny little thing in case anything, anything dramatic occurs, it's going to be, it's, it's going to be filmed. Um, can I ask you, um, um, you know, um, William Faulkner has a novel called As I Lay Dying. Do you know that book? Of course, yeah. yeah. Can, you, can you just t- take us through that book? Yeah, uh, As I Lay Dying would have been one of the main uh, books for me. I would have read it a few times when I was writing uh, Youth. Um, it's a book from uh, a family, um, different perspectives like Youth, but to be more characters in it. Um, one of the main things for me for As I Lay Dying was, it's obviously in the vernacular, but um, um, Faulkner in a Paris Review interview says that Daryl is one of the main characters and he used Daryl's language to... That was his way to write. So everyone else was very vernacular heavy in As I Lie Dying, as you know. We said Daryl was the one person that he could kind of hang a lot of the yeah. um, writerly so the, the story. This, this, this is a big family and they're moving across the southern states of America in some way or other with the body of their mother in a sort of coffin. And they're wandering along, but that's not what's important, really. What's important is that each of them gets to speak yeah. and they get it. And sometimes it just could be a line. And as you say, it's, it's, it has a, it's filled with local flavor and Southern speech. And the next one then gets his or her name at the top of the page. And then you get them speaking. And so you never know what's going to happen when you turn the page. But, but it is, but it is a sense. It's not necessarily a chorus as much as because they don't speak together. But it is, it is as though each, each perspective comes in to give you a, a different version. No, no, it just struck me. I think that book for every novelist, and indeed for every reader maybe, it, it has a special place. It's called As I Lay Dying by William Faulkner. And it just struck me reading this book, hey, hey this guy has to have read As I Lay Dying. And even there's, as you'll know, there's one part at the end where I forget the girl's name. She goes into a chemist or a pharmacist and she wants to get a a tablet for, you know, I think a kind of an abortion. And this was a kind of formative for for the possibilities of what a novel, a multi-voice novel can do. And she goes in and she meets the guys and um, they bring her around the back to, we won't get into it, but they give her a tablet and she walks away and she's delighted with herself. But then in the next chapter, we get the perspective of the chemist or the lad working in the chemist. And he tells us that he gave her a paracetamol. Um, reading that for me, I remember back in, it would have been my early 20s, it just blown my mind of how you can do that with multi-voiced uh, novel, that you can kind of set something up and then just explode the reader's mind in the next chapter. Um, and it obviously... Yeah, there are, time, there, there are times where you tell the same story from two perspectives. And what's interesting is you don't do that all the time. So that it's just something that you use when you need it. Is that right? Yes, yeah. Uh, definitely it was done... Like, as you're getting towards the, the thin end of the wedge, as you're coming towards the end of the book, it was important that was done. And in the major scenes, like there's a scene where we're on Main Street and Angel and uh, Palumi and Paddy have an argument about the word all right hour. And I thought that was a, a kind of, you know, a scene that you kind of, a major turning point in the book. So you wanted a few perspectives. And then the end part as well, you wanted a few different perspectives just to kind of, you're trying to pull all the strands together for the reader. And you want the reader then to, because by the end of the novel, the reader should know all the characters at this stage. So they should understand where each of them are coming from and pull them from when they're talking about the same kind of scene. And there'll be a scene on the beach that's repeated, I think, repeated four times, yeah. three times. Yeah. yeah. 
And it was important then that we get the character sense of kind of uh, an end to this kind of the, the journey that they're making and the journey that they've been on and are going on. Um, it might have been easier, um, but it wouldn't have had the same result if you had just given these kids their lives without an um, older generation. But one of the subtleties of the book, and what I mean, you're, you're extremely tactful about, is giving them parents. Because that's the hardest thing to do, because it isn't as they're, they're not in permanent battle with their parents, nor are they deeply involved taking advice from their parents. But the parents are there, and the reader gets to imagine the things, things like love, dependence, all those things. The reader gets to imagine those. But what you get are, are single moments where a, a bit of conflict or a moment of pure connection, but, it, but, it, but it's jagged. It's 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 rich. It's never direct, and it's and it's not systematic, or indeed, it's not. Um, I suppose symmetrical. The, the parents were an important part of the book in a number of ways. There's like on two levels. Um, I wanted Angel and Princess to be on the journey, basically on their own. So I wanted them to establish them like, to be talking about the new new Balbrig in the New Orleans. They have to deal with the world that they face, literally the main street of Balbriggan, on their own terms. So the parental involvement for them was, you know yourself, it was in the background. Whereas for Tanya and Dean, they have the weight of, in Dean's case, his father's a famous boxer, so he has to deal with that expectation. And Tanya, of course, has her her father and the mother mother issues. But the, the parents, in all kind of teenage fiction, and, and, and even in movies, um, parents shouldn't be there. You, you don't want them, to, if anything, they're, you, you know, they get in the way and they bog down. You want to see the characters and especially teenage characters express themselves freely. In my case, it was on the streets. So that's why I kind of kept the home out a lot. Um, but intentionally for Princess and um, Angel, they were kept out to just show you that these are basically people out on their own. And they have to deal with this world on their own and on their own terms. Um, the parents obviously have been on a different journey. And the parents know Bob Regan differently, whereas Angel and Princess are starting from scratch and they have to deal with this world in, on their own terms. Um, Tanya, Tanya um, has a particular problem, but there's a wonderful moment. I absolutely adored it. I just, uh, if, if you were, if you were to show people, is there one paragraph of this book? It's very, I think there's a, is it a girls football match and the father runs out on the pitch and it looks as though he's going to go for the referee. And you think, all right, I get that. And but he runs across the pitch and he just goes for some guy who's on the other side of the pitch and wants to hit him. And of course, you don't know why. You learn why later. But it's a wonderful moment of pure chaos, anarchy coming in from the side, which is what, you know, you think the father's going to be so loyal to his daughter. He's going to do something for her. But you realize, no, that's not how he thinks. And um, there's something else going on all the time. I just, sorry, just a small touch of the book. You probably, you know, I think, am I right in thinking that those sort of scenes for this book came to you quickly? Um, without having to put much thought into them, that they seem they seem effortless in the way they're done. They seem natural, and seem. I'm not saying you didn't revise the language, but I'm saying those images seem extraordinarily fresh and vivid. And I wonder if they were that for you, you know, that they just came as you were working easily. Oh, we 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 pull we go behind the curtain here. Um, that scene for Tanya, I'd say, was probably ten pages, and it was brought down to one paragraph. Hold on, um, hold on, hold on. Oh, we'll go slow. Y- you mean the scene where she's at the match? Yeah, yeah. That, that, that would have been probably ten pages, and over the years, it was brought down to a paragraph. Um, also, Tanya's father had I had a ten thousand word uh, story for Tanya's father, who was in an original uh, version of the book. So, <laughs> all of that was brought down to a paragraph. 
So it took a while to get down to a paragraph, but I'm glad it runs well and it works well. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm really, I'm really shocked. Uh, yeah. could you, could, sorry, I need to go back now because you're really wrong footed me. You, th- this is how you work. That in other words, that that you that you would go home in the evening, say at five, you obviously get something to eat, and then you settle down and you would write pages and pages and pages. Do you know you're not going to use them? Do you know that you're drafting and that out of this will come something distilled? Is that how you work? I do know. (laughs) (laughs) That's the way it worked with this one. Did you know then? No, um, I didn't. And that was the problem. And and you learn as you're writing. And I know I obviously have had two previous books, but you learn as you go on that that's what I should have been doing previously. And I know I've heard Wendy talk to you, Wendy Erskine talk to you, but she writes three times too much and comes down. with me, it took that level and I've learned it now. And for, for new work, I, I work the same. I write big and I'll bring it down. And it needs to have that. Uh, I'm not a good enough writer, I think, to like Colin Barrett to, to express myself brilliantly on the page like that. So I think as a writer, I need to now write as much as I can and then go back to it and enjoy the process of going back and enjoy the process of distilling one image like the father going across the pitch instead of writing, which I would have, the full football match. And I would have written the father coming out of the house and I would have written the story from the father's perspective and I would have written the fight and I would have written the aftermath of the fight and I would have written the mother coming in in her in her pyjamas to stop the fight. So, but that's a good editor as well. So, yeah. My feeling is that no one, that no writer ever changes, that you have a method you work with and that you can't do anything to adapt it. But, I, but I'm fascinated with that because I honestly, with that particular scene, I thought this must have come in a flash and been written in a second because it has that lovely feel of being organic and natural to the natural to the moment and perfectly done. And uh, what pleasure it must be to be able to work like that. And now I'm completely <laughs> wrong. It, it was a pleasure to edit like that, but... Um... That's why I've learned. I love editing. I love getting down to it. But that's and again, and you'll know yourself. It's the I mean, Sean in in Lilliput, the editor that I had was just. It's amazing to work with an editor and be able to kind of get down to the essence of a scene like that and write the scene like that and have it feel effortless. But um, it took a while to get there, as would um, every paragraph in the book. This is this is Sean Farrell at Lilliput. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Would Sean take take that ten thousand words? And bring it home and come back to you a week later saying, you know, I think you could bring this down to a paragraph. Or would that feeling come after much discussion with him? No, in, in, it's that, in that little piece itself, it would have been myself. I would have brought it down to a thousand words. But then Sean would have said too much. And then we would have brought it down from a thousand to maybe 300. And that's true, the editor the process but the big the, all the other characters that was all the rejections from the, from the different publishers saying there's too many characters there's too much here too much there but um, what you get when you get a good editor like that who can and you can trust who can distill something and he, he did that with a few scenes and a few kind of just get rid of that scene and bring this scene right down and I love that process I love learning about scenes from that process and seeing someone in work like that and then coming up with something that reads so easy as that and um- Kevin, I think I think for the rest of your life, um, people are going to come up to you on the street and say, "Either I'm princess, or I know princess. I know who she is. I know who you used, or I know someone exactly like her. Or how did you get her? Or how did you make her?" In the same way, I suppose, as people must have come up to John Millington Singh and said, "Where did Peggy, Peggy Mike, is so filled with contradictions, so filled with life? She's so needy in one way and so controlling and ready for the world in another." So I so I need to ask you. <laughs> um, if, if someone were to say to you, I, I think that's me, princess, or 
Where did you get her? Did you see her? Did you teach her? Did you invent her? That that's one of the, the the single biggest trail of of youth for me has been um, having students like Princess number one reading the book and seeing themselves on the page, and number two believing a character princess exists on the page, and then coming up to me like my own students and saying we love princess and that's been so gratifying it's amazing because that's one of the main reasons i did it i've read enough books over the years in a class with my students that we don't have a princess um princess as i've said is a distillation as you know yourself i've been 14 years teaching and i've seen i've as i said before i've I've seen four or five princesses every year pass through the school who might necessarily get on to be pharmacy or might not necessarily gone to trinity but they've all had a hope and a wish and a dream to overcome obstacles that weren't their fault they were put in their way um so a princess is is all the students and none if you you know you know yourself, but um, just to make someone believable like that and have even my early readers I had three girls read the princess chapters for me before she was published, um, I always give them a shout out uh, Tomalina, um, a glory and uh, Queenie, even when they were reading the A4 manuscript, um, they just just they were blown away that they were reading someone like themselves on the page, which was was great. And then we had a, an actress do the audiobook in the same said this is the first time she's ever read a part in an Irish context that wasn't to do with being a refugee or wasn't to do with something that just didn't mean that you're just a character on the street on your own terms. Um, so that was Princess for me. And uh, it, she worked and I'm glad she worked, but it took a long time to get there and a, a lot of work to get her to where I wanted to be. But to have the students now come back to me and say that they... Um, they love princess was is is me doing I'm so so um grateful that that's happened I, I think anyone male or female irrespective of of um your race who's ever thought that staying in a library on a Thursday night until nine was something you look forward to was great you, you, people are going to start saying yeah I'm a bit like princess you know I stay in the library until nine but she's a complicated figure I mean I mean I mean I mean it's not as though she's a really good girl and she just does everything well but she she she's she really knows how Ireland works she knows not, you know like like a lot of those kids who get all those A's they have all that way they have everything worked out and she does except of course everything is against her the hurdles I mean the hurdles she has to Past. But also what's fascinating is that she sees something in Angel that he almost doesn't see in himself, that the reader sees in him. But he uh, he's so confused and he's such a good guy, but he's a follower. He's someone who, who, who will easily go with the gang and she wants to isolate him, just get him back from that. And so that's a great drama. Her, her power versus his, I suppose, insecurity becomes a great drama in the book. Yeah, and it just so happens a student of mine again today has finished a book and he said to me, uh, I'm Angel. He said, I've I've been Angel all my life and I had a, a group like that and he's a Leaving Cert student and he, he sees himself in like that, like princess. And uh, that was important for me because I think the, the back to hyper-masculinity and especially for, for, for guys like Angel, they're surrounded by this idea of they're limited in what they see and what's presented to them as what's achievable in in life and it's not necessarily to do a race it's to do a class as well in a lot of ways and there's no they don't see an actual way to go and a way to achieve things in life that um that doesn't present itself in english or american culture and then we're talking drugs and we're talking rap music and drill music and i think princess just sees in him um, something more than just being with his mates and talking about stabbing lads and talking about rapping and all the misogynistic lyrics that he has a sense that he wants to do something more um, with himself but he doesn't know how doesn't know how to step outside himself or step outside that that circle and Princess is 
is wise enough or awake enough to see that if 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 he stays with her, if he do, talks with her, he can kind of form a new uh, a new road for himself, which he I'm glad to see he he takes. Yeah, I, I, we've been talking about this idea of masculinity, hyper-masculinity versus vulnerability. And we're talking about Princess as a very powerful, very, you know, figure figure who really has certain things sussed. But you give her a great vulnerability physically. In other words, that in a room with some young men, she's really in danger, as Tanya is. I mean, it is, it is as though even though these women are, I suppose, they're, they're, they're more confident. But there's, there are moments when you think... I just, that, there's one special moment in the book where you just think, please let her be okay. Please don't let this happen. And so, so, so you have a sense not not just of her controlling the world, but of certain moments where, as a young woman, she's she's really really vulnerable. Yeah, and I know the moment you're talking about, and that intentionally again was we kept that vague, the, the you know, the chapter break, and we didn't address that until the very end because I wanted to play on the, the reader's kind of biases and prejudice and to kind of assume that the worst had happened. So you're kind of in some way surprised at the end. So that was like an, a technical thing. But again, you're talking about any, like I'm, I'm a father of a, a young eight-year-old girl. She'll be a teenager soon, too soon, unfortunately. But any girl in a, in a group of lads, and as we talked about with Dean and who are, who are being conditioned to believe certain ways of living and behaving around women, um, any any young girl in, in a situation like that, especially when they're alone, you have to worry for them, regardless of who the, the boys are. Um, I think the boys are, we said, conditioned by uh, what's acceptable and how to talk. I think maybe that's changing. Um, and even from the 14 years that I'm I'm teaching in the school, I've seen a change, not only in language used towards each other, but to women, but behaviour as well. So, um, yeah, if this book was to be written in another six years, I think that sense of danger in amongst men hopefully will have shifted for teenagers and it won't be the same um, sense of trepidation if you're a girl on your own in a in a group of young lads like that. I think you must have a feeling writing this book and publishing it that you're at the cusp of something that, 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 you're, in a, that you're in a place of, I suppose, that has a special energy attached to it and, and that gives you both a sort of power and responsibility. Um, as an artist, that 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 it, that that it, you must feel funny sometimes reading other novels that that are dealing as though life has, is not a struggle for the characters. Yeah. Um, number one, I wrote it not known it would be published. I think that's a good part way to write for for some right, yeah. because um, yeah. yeah, you'd have so many questions then about Bob Riggin and uh, characters. So I wrote it not known it would be published, but I wrote it with a real. Um, drive to get it published because of the characters and I really wanted to see characters like Annie and Dean and Angel Princess be on the page and deal with those struggles like you say um, I read so much and I, I just didn't see those struggles especially for teenagers and in modern Ireland being represented I know we have brilliant writers like Colin Barrett who who, who write teenagers like that um, but just in a suburban setting in a multicultural setting in a working class setting in a contemporary setting and dealing with contemporary issues and contemporary struggles. It was it was a responsibility, 100% a responsibility, but you only had to hopefully deal with it in such a sense that it was true to the time and true to the characters. And um, once I was able to do that, um, it, 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 it works on the page. Like I've had, unfortunately, a mad experience where a few schools in the town are, are, are listening and reading the audiobook or reading the book and listening to the audiobook. So I had the weird experience of... Uh, listening to my own audiobook with my own transition year English class over the last six weeks. Um, well, that's when, this is that, this, that's when this you know. one. 
at this book. Imagine you, you are being tested every single sentence in front of a group of 16 and 17 year olds um, was they listened to it. And now at the end, again, it's one of the greatest reading experiences of my life or a writer uh, on the last word, the class literally broke into applause and clapped, which was incredible. But you have an, you have a responsibility to that generation and those readers to be correct about how they are and uh, what they face in life and what they see and what they have to deal with. So that was a, uh, the book being tested to the max in a, in a situation like that. But I felt that responsibility. And especially when you're listening to people read out every line and you're sitting there with a group of 28, 16, 17 roles, if you're wrong on anything and if you, you make, make a misstep on anything, they were going to let you know. And uh, luckily enough, I got away unscathed. That's all right. That, that really must have been an extraordinary experience. Yes, it was, it, it was amazing because you live... I never thought it would be number one read in the classroom. So the other schools in the town were told me they were going to read it. So my principal said, well, you're the teacher in the school, so we might as well do it here too. Luckily enough, I wasn't. We had an audio book and you could hear the laughter from lines and a lot of the language was uh, amazing. I thought I'd say it was weird for the kids, but to have the explosion of like totally wasn't expecting it, the kids to clap at the end. Um, I think they obviously, they were, they were filled with the sense of hope that I uh, hope was there at the end of the book so that was amazing and a mental experience but uh, also very gratifying yeah <laughs>